I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome today's guest, Sarah Jaffe. She is author of Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. Sarah, welcome. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. You are also a labor reporter, journalist, um, and have covered that beat extensively and pretty deeply for years now. Let me ask you a very basic question to begin (laughs) with. Is it the case that work won't love us back primarily in the United States, or is it really a universal phenomenon in your estimation? So I'm speaking to you from England right now, where I spent a bunch of time reporting this book. I also reported from Canada, and um, I did not go to Germany, but one of the workers who I spoke to in the book is from Germany. And um, so I would say it is a universal truth. However, Americans have a particular attitude towards work and we've been exporting that. So like the unpaid internship, for example, is an American innovation that has now made it around the world. Right. Or healthcare. Well, um, in, you know. <laughs> in the countries you mentioned, though, in, in, you know, in the vast majority of instances, yeah. but not every instance, you, know, you rely on one person either yourself or your partner mm-hmm. for that if, you know, and, and larger organizations are much more equipped to provide healthcare and then provide adequate healthcare. And that's, that's unique to the United States, right? Of the countries you mentioned relative to Germany, UK and Canada. Yeah. So work won't love you back in a variety of respects and, and right. maybe most universally in the U S but in that respect, I wonder if it is culturally different enough that, you feel um, protected by society, by your sort of countrymen in the healthcare systems of those countries. Yeah, and I think what's happening in so many of these places, right, is that the sort of, I mean, the reason that Europe has these strong social safety nets is the post-World War II sort of social compact, right, that was just never as strong in the U.S. And so we built our healthcare system off of unionized jobs, and we assumed that people would get a good unionized job, and that would provide healthcare for them and their family. And when those jobs go away, we don't have a public system that picks up the slack. Now, here in the U.K., for example, they have a wonderful, fully public healthcare system. However, they've been slashing funding for it for years and years and years. And so people have a really hard time getting doctor's appointments, not because public healthcare doesn't work, but because of austerity and all of these things in the last several decades, they've been cutting it back sort of at the same time as we've been seeing the same shrinking of the safety net in other ways in other in the U.S. So what's happening in a lot of places is not, it's not hitting people quite as badly because you still have access to publicly provided healthcare. But the same patterns of work are happening and the same patterns of sort of cutbacks to public services are happening. It's just that in the U.S. we had much less far to fall, so to speak. Right. And the hardcover of your book came out earlier this year in January. I mentioned healthcare, Sarah, because we're (laughs) still in the midst of a pandemic, a pandemic, right? And so there are... um, some of us who've been privileged to be able to work from home for yeah. the majority, if not all, the pandemic. Right. Um, 
those who have resumed their function in person, even though it's not required, just because of a kind of rigidity uh, in the attitude of employers. And this is what is stunning to me. Uh, The CEO of Morgan Stanley was quoted in a story in the New York Times that the, the remote work was for real. This, this, is, this is it. And, and I think it was in connection to real estate and how their offices were fully functional remote. And many companies now have backtracked from <laughs> their earlier assertions about flexibility and remote being you know, most desirable and even essential for <laughs> families during this time. Um, so it, it seems like we haven't learned from the pandemic. We still don't have a living wage. We still don't, I mean, in the United States, you're in UK right now. We still don't have a living wage. We still don't have a universal right to high quality care. Yeah. We still have, even if you are in, in a subsidized plan, extreme deductibles for mm-hmm. the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare plans um, yeah. that were supposed to be a public service. So, yeah. you know, Work isn't loving you back in the U.S., and and there doesn't seem to be a recognition since you published your book that uh, the conditions of the pandemic, uh, as it is still a pandemic, ought to be preserved. Yeah, I mean, what happened in the the workplace, right? Right. Well, yeah, what happened in the pandemic, right, in terms of work, is we basically split into three groups. Those of us who can do our jobs from home, right? Like I, I've been working from home for ten years now, so like I'm. You know, I was ahead of the curve, but people like us who can mostly do our job from home and it's not as good to do these interviews over Zoom as it was to do them in person, certainly, but we can do them. Um, Then there were people who just got laid off. Right. Jobs are gone. Um, In some cases, you know, they were kept on payroll. There's a furlough scheme here in the UK, but mostly people who are just not working. And then there are the people who still had to keep going to work. You know, and that is the so-called essential workers, right? And that's the healthcare workers, but also food service, all of these things that sort of stayed open to make sure that the rest of us, you know, didn't die and could keep ordering things and could keep the computers running and all of that stuff. Um, So there were people going into a workplace, whether or not that was an office um, for the entire time. And in each of those cases, right, conditions were not very good in a variety of ways. The people who still had to go to the office obviously had it the worst because they were taking a much bigger risk than the rest of us. But one would think that some of this language about essential workers and essential work would have stuck to us that we might've thought, you know, hey, those people deserve a raise. Yeah, right. Um, We might think that we have underestimated the amount of our jobs that we need to do in a direct office under the supervision of our boss. And look, there are bad things about working from home too. Like as somebody who's worked from home for the last 10 years, again, I pay all my bills. I pay my internet, my, you know, my phone, my Wi-Fi, my pay for new computers. I pay for printers, printer paper, all of that stuff that your boss would normally pay for if you again went to an office. So, you know, there are downsides in that way. There are downsides that it makes it harder to organize with your coworkers if you are fed up with your working conditions and want to do something about them. But also, you know, people have childcare responsibilities. Another thing we really don't have in the U.S. is a functional childcare system, right? So in a way that would make it a lot more easy and a lot more equitable in the workplace, in a lot of ways, would be to give people 
more flexible working hours. And I mean, the real thing that we all could use is fewer of those working hours, right? right? And so, you know, I think one of the things we hopefully might learn is that we don't need to spend all of our lives working. And I was just, um, I was actually working on the preface for the paperback edition of the book the other day. So I was literally looking at numbers and like monster.com released a survey saying 95% of people are considering switching jobs after the pandemic. So like we've definitely had a moment of thinking about how we work and how it's not functional. And my book just happened to come out at the right time. (laughs) Well, I think you describe very accurately the state of being here um, in the U S And more broadly, too, to the extent that a lot of developed nations have emulated the U.S. rather than Canada, Germany, and the U.K., which you mentioned. One of the interesting things, Sarah, was that in the original debate over COVID relief when Trump Mm -hmm. was still president, there was Mitch McConnell did not want to act on aid unless there was a liability shield. And to my knowledge, that liability shield has still not been installed in effect, even though there have been multiple stages of um, stimulus and and some protection for workers since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, But but my point really is Mm -hmm. we are still in the pandemic. Yes. It's not, yes. not over, over by any means. It's definitely and, not over. Right. And, and so the idea that these you know, companies that um, are requiring work in office, even though it's totally not essential, yeah. um, are going to be subjected to, I would imagine, um, unless McConnell gets his way with a future stimulus and a liability shield, they're going to be subjected to a plethora of lawsuits, are they not? I mean, it's actually really hard to sue your employer in a lot of cases anyway, right? Like, A, most people can't afford a lawyer. B, um, there are all sorts of things that you sign normally when you're taking a job that, you know, anything from, you know, binding arbitration to, uh, you know, NDAs and whatnot. So it's actually much harder to sue your boss already. Mitch McConnell just wanted to make it even harder to sue your boss. Um, And there were things that, you know, Trump did, like basically um, really meatpacking plants, you know, sort of free from any restrictions, regulations, because that was one of the real hotspots for people getting sick and dying. And of course, do you want people who are sick and dying of COVID handling the meat that you're eating? Probably not. Um, But yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea that you would hold up money that millions of people needed to survive because you want to make sure that corporations don't get sued. It's a little bit of a skewed priority, wouldn't you say? Right, right. It is. And, and, you know, having said that, I I do wonder if we're possibly on the cutting edge of this um, legal reckoning, you know, Mm. in the same way that if you watch Philadelphia with Hanks in, in Washington, you know, you, that was really the beginning of, of some larger cultural cognizance about uh, suing folks on, on the basis of uh, their sexual orientation or if they are ill. And that was the case in that particular movie based on real events. So I, I hear what you're saying, but I yeah. just do wonder if um, this thing, you know, does stick around yeah. with its, its 
multiplicity of variants and transmissibility and infection, even for people who are protected, yeah. even for people who are vaccinated, I just, I wonder if it will set the stage for um, a whole lot of these suits, whether they're class actions or not, but a lot of suits, yeah. you know, basically saying I did, you know, my job thoroughly, yeah. completely, you asked me to come to the office, I continue to doing that, that, yeah. and then because you forced me to come to the office, in effect, otherwise I was going to lose my job, lose yeah. my benefits, you know, then in that scenario, the family, the, you know, of the victim could yeah. sue the company. I mean, I think that's a legitimate. Yeah. Uh, I, but what usually happens with, with cases court. like this, right, is that like the goal of, of a big class action lawsuit is not so much to get money for the victim, so much as it is to change policy. Right. right exactly. And then when we're talking about labor lawsuits, this is especially true. Um, if you look at like how long it takes to get these things sort of through the courts, it is not a useful source for most people of restitution if you lose your job that way. Right. right most correct. people are just going to be like, well, I'm screwed. I've got to go get another job. Right. But like what it will do if people decide to fight it this way is it would probably be done by places like the ACLU, like some of these, um, like the National Employment Law Project, maybe organizations that do this in order to try to um, change policy, to change the law, to use that to push for different things. Now, one of the things that's been happening since Biden took office is they've been putting more money into funding the Labor Department, which, you know, has a whole lot of things underneath it, including workplace safety inspectors, which we have been so deeply underfunded on that I think the last time I checked pre the Biden administration, they had about enough inspectors to inspect every workplace once every 900 years. So, you know, just seeing more money going into workplace health and safety inspections is, is like a step in the right direction. Although again, these are places that it's really hard for individual people to get redress through um you will get you will solve your problems a lot faster organizing quickly with organizing with your coworkers. that also takes a while but it takes less time than a lawsuit most of the time for a labor guy sarah uh biden has his work cut out for him he he is strongly you know formidable uh, um when it comes to resonating with the blue collar audience um he's built a political career in Delaware and now nationally on that, that kind of person of the people aura. When it comes down to it, labor and the rights of, of workers could not be at a lower low right now in the U.S., which is to say, you know, we live in not only a cannibal, cannibalistic capitalism, but we live, you know, in a, in a state of, of severe inequity, we live in that state while the rights of those dispossessed or those um, who have very little possession, yeah. um, you know, are, are virtually stripped of their right, going back to your point about how hard it is to sue in the first place. So when it comes to like the first tangible things that a President Biden, now that he is president, can accomplish, um, you know, either before the midterms or beyond 22, you know, gearing up for a re-election in 24, what are those tangible things knowing the American political landscape? 
So, yeah, so the top priority for the labor movement is the PRO Act, which is the Protecting the Right to Organize Act. Um, and obviously, the Senate at this moment is not like immediately in any rush to pass well much of anything because, you know, Mitch McConnell, as you mentioned, doesn't really want anything good to happen for working people. But um, the PRO Act is something that would roll back things like right to work states right, which allow people to basically get the benefits of union contract without having to pay anything to the union. And it would put actual sort of binding penalties in place for employers who violate the law during a union election. For example, the recent Amazon union election in Bessemer, Alabama, right, um, the union accused Amazon of, I think, like 29 different law violations, including possibly illegally tampering with a post office box that they got installed on the premises. Um, and even if they are found guilty of doing that, there's basically very little real penalties. Elon Musk was, um, you know, found guilty by a, the Labor Department of violating workers' rights at the Tesla plant in California. And his punishment was to rehire the one guy who had been fired and to read a statement out loud to the plant saying that they had the right to organize. And he's still appealing. So putting into place actual penalties for employers who violate the law, once again, this would be a real step in the right direction because right now you can basically get away with murder. And those, you know, the men that I've just mentioned are like the two richest men on the planet who are currently in like a weird billionaire space race with the guy from Virgin Airlines who I just found out didn't actually go to space. He just flew a plane really high and they're calling it going to space. So I don't know. Um, but billionaires have way too much time and money on their hands is what I'm saying. And they can basically under the current law kind of get away with murder. In understanding that is the status quo, mm -hmm. you know, we think of solutions like universal basic income mm -hmm. as like an incremental way yeah. to, you know, start a measure of fairness. Yeah. Um, it's not leveling the playing field. That's not a correct definition of what, right. at least as it's been implemented or advocated so far, yeah. uh, what universal basic income. But then, you know, we talk about the Supreme Court of the United States in the most recent session, which is further barring the right to, to petition or to get folks in, enrolled, involved in, in unions. Um, that was a decision in this most recent court that you might right. comment on. But Knowing, again, that the political, the legislative and judicial and economic, you know, capitalistic structure are all, you know, anti-worker, basically, um, what, what can we reasonably hope would get accomplished over the next two or four years? A, a, a hike in the minimum wage, a, yeah. uh, you know, or, or maybe we're looking at advances at, at the state level, because in all honesty, Republican yeah. governors know as much as Democratic governors the reality that I just said. Yeah. And so what we have seen, right, in so many places in the U.S. is that states and really cities are experimenting with various advancements in labor law. So New York City, for instance, just enacted its just cause protections for the fast food industry. So now if you work at McDonald's, your boss has to have a reason to fire you because most, country, most states in the U.S. other than Montana, um, it is legal to fire you no matter what. Um, so they put just cause protections into the law for fast food workers. Um, in Emeryville, California, I reported from there a few years ago on um, a fair scheduling bill for retail workers, where they had the right to be paid if they were put on on-call shift. If they were sent home early, they had to be paid for an extra hour of the time if they were sent home early. So it disincentivized the boss from sort of jerking around their schedules. Um, 
things like that, obviously raising the minimum wage locally, those have been really helpful. But again, that, that, you know, that helps people who live in New York, which, you know, is 8 million people. That's not nothing to snooze at, but right. As long as you have states like Alabama, where, you know, the state government is just not going to bat an eyelash if Amazon comes in, builds a whole bunch of facilities and just abuses the hell out of their workers. Um, yeah, it's going to take a lot of building and a lot of organizing and a lot of disruption to change this stuff because it's not just going to be handed to us nicely, but it wasn't handed to us nicely the first time around. Right. Right. The fact that we got labor law as we knew it, that was at one point pretty good and still contains some pretty decent protections, right? Your boss cannot legally fire you for organizing on the job, even if you don't have a union. That's a thing most people don't know. Now, of course, again, we talked about how there are no real penalties for them doing that anyway. But nevertheless, you know, the things that are in the law, some of them are pretty decent. Some of them were pretty decent until they got rolled back. That all came from massive waves of organizing, strikes, protests. Um, in some cases, you know, when we talk about the mine wars, we're not joking, right? That this was actually really quite violent and bloody in places like West Virginia, you know, 100 years ago when they were unionizing the coal mines. And so that all sounds very depressing when I put it that way, doesn't it? Well, well it, it does. And that's <laughs> why I asked you the first question about your escape to the UK. <laughs> you, you tell us that you've reported from there, from Canada, yeah. from Germany, or you at least are corresponding with workers there. Yeah. And, and my basic contention that for most folks, yeah. work will never love you back in the US. But in other countries, you know, there is an extent to which work loves you back a little bit, uh, or at least well, kind of... Well, I mean, in know. this case, the state loves you back, right? Because you're not getting your health care through your employer at all in this country, right? So you're getting your, your health care from the government. Right. So I'm our employer has nothing to do with it. Right. So, you know, so the working conditions can still be pretty bad, and they are, right? The latest fun thing that UK right. employers are doing is fire and rehire. Right. Because they have the right to an employment contract over here, but they're basically firing people so that they can rewrite their um, employment contract and bring them back on under worse conditions. So that's the next latest fun thing that's happening over here or the zero hours contract where you get a contract, but it doesn't gu guarantee you any time. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's, it's grim kind of everywhere. It's just, you know. Fair enough. I, and I wasn't <laughs> necessarily talking about the reality and I wasn't yeah. talking specifically about healthcare as mm -hmm. much as the perception of some Americans yeah. that the work relationship that they ha would have in not necessarily the three countries we've compared the U.S. to today, mm -hmm. but in a host of other countries, whether that's you know South Korea or Japan, or I'm sure the, the, the grimness hits the fan in, in a lot of directions and the generational reality of divestment and austerity mm -hmm. and and basically this disconnect between the largesse of the few and everybody else i mean that's true everywhere right yeah. for the, for the, but mm -hmm. but basically i guess i'm asking you to close on this question of, of the perception because yeah. the perception of some americans maybe legitimately maybe not is that in european countries for example or at least a selection of european countries it, it is a healthier um, financially and psychologically relationship with your employer than in the U.S. It's a and perception. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and again, I would say that, you know, the U.S. is uniquely bad in a lot of ways, right? And again, like, and we're exporting those. So, you know, what often happens when you're over here, for example, is people say, do you want us to end up like the U.S.? Mm-hmm. When we talk about, you know, anything from cutbacks to healthcare to various changes to labor law, they're like, do you want us to be like those Americans? You know, when the French get threatened with, you know, raising the length of the working week, they go, you know, set things on fire because they don't want to end up like the Americans. And so, yeah, I mean, I, there are definitely places that have a healthier um, relationship to work. Iceland just um, finished trials of a four-day working week. So, you know, there is a... There's definitely... Uh, New Zealand uh, and Australia have been on, on sort of the, the less grim side of things, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's it's a question of, I mean, there's so many things going on right now, right? But I think what's happening, especially after the pandemic again, is that people are realizing that like, not only do we need to change very, very quickly because, you know, we're setting the planet on fire, but also we can change very, very quickly because we did just change very, very quickly, right? Let me ask you one final question because we only have seconds, but I'm very curious. This just occurred to me. You know, one of the explanations for why we can never have it that way in the U.S. is the deficits and the budgets related to public pensions. Um, You hear it time and time again from conservatives and even, I would say, center-left folks who want to be cognizant of that. Illinois and Chicago are prime examples. What's the appropriate reaction to that based on the actual facts? I mean, I'm not a Keynesian economist, but I would say that, you know, we, we proved a long time ago that deficits are not necessarily terrible. And if, you know, conservatives want to complain about deficits, I would like to introduce them to their hero, Ronald Reagan, who right. ran massive deficits. But the, ultimately, what those people are espousing is the idea that, um, doing what is humane, and in many cases, what is owed to public yeah. workers, the school bus driver for 40 years. Yeah. Uh, sure, uh, Illinois or Chicago might be in debt, but do you want to deny that person a humane retirement? Uh, and we'll leave on that maybe less than grim question of a note. Sarah Jaffe, thank you for the book you wrote and the important labor journalism you do every day. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.